Now the passage we're studying this evening is chapter 6 and from verse 4 down to verse 12, a second part of the warning, uh, the warning to these Hebrew uh, readers and to us today. Certain, certain signals either encourage or discourage a, a preacher of the gospel. Uh, there are encouraging uh, sounds and signs which can come from a congregation. Uh, they would include rustling of Bibles uh, as people go to the passage to study it, uh, note-taking, uh, a sense of being attentive and prayerful. All of these things encourage the preacher. Then there are discouraging uh, symptoms. Uh, There is the glazed look. There is the stifled yawn. Uh, The dings of distraction that show that people really aren't interested, that their mind is somewhere else. The writer to the Hebrews does not have visible signs in front of him that his people are not with him, but he senses from what he knows that they don't have, at this juncture, the stomach for proceeding with what he has been speaking about, which is the high priesthood of Jesus. And the trigger is the the mention of the name Melchizedek. Uh, He knows that some of his readership are thinking, this is getting just a little bit heavy. And so he breaks off in verse 11. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. Literally, we, we said that that slow was dull, listless, lazy. The background, uh, sorry, we we have uh, after this, this this digression marked at verse 11, uh, a piece which is in parenthesis uh, about the warning against falling away and an exhortation to move on. Uh, He's going to go back, he's going to pick up on Melchizedek and Jesus being a priest like Melchizedek but there is this uh, digression uh, if you like uh, that we're looking at this evening and the background to the whole of the letter is that these are Christians who've come from a Jewish background and as such they have forfeited the state recognition that Judaism had the Roman Emperor uh, gave recognition to certain religions. And if you were a Jew, you had a privileged status. But when you became a Christian, you lost that. Christians didn't have any protection under imperial law. And if we accept a date of the late 60s, which a lot of the scholars uh, tend to think of, in other words, it's uh, before the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in AD 70, then the likelihood is that the letter has been written during the reign of Emperor Nero. Now immediately that tells us that this was a time of some crazy persecution of Christians. Nero was paranoid and after the fire of Rome, he blamed this on Christians. And on one occasion, or on several occasions, he rounded up Christians and he had them uh, clothed in garments that were soaked in pitch. He tied them to stakes in the imperial gardens and set them on fire as human candlesticks to illuminate uh, his gardens. This was an example of some of the the ferocious opposition that was a reality uh, in the life of the early church. 
And because of that, it seems that some of the, the letters' readership were, wa- were wavering in their faith. And we're thinking now of going back to Judaism, back to the place of safety, back to the old visible rituals and, and, uh, and form of worship. And a symptom of this vacillation is a spiritual laziness. Important, I think, for us to recognise that, that the word I mentioned earlier, this word lazy, bookends the passage. Uh, it's in verse 11, and it's again verse 12. We don't want you to become lazy. Uh, there's a, a lethargy which is possibly indicative of a falling away. Now, he'll conclude that he doesn't think that they have fallen categorically away. But it's a red light on the dashboard, flashing. It's a warning sign. And so he issues this warning. Those who have subjected Christ to public disgrace after having experienced the realities of the gospel will find it impossible to be brought back again to repentance. Now, it's a really hard passage and uh, our understanding of it really revolves around the question of what's the spiritual status of those to whom the letter is addressed, whom the warnings addressed. And there are basically there are three positions that have been taken on this. Uh, the first is that the passage refers uh, to Christians uh, who lose their salvation. That's the Arminian position. And an Arminian is not someone who lives in Turkey, but an Arminian is somebody who believes basically that the deciding factor in salvation is human decision rather than the will of God. We're saved because we choose to believe and equally we can choose not to believe and so lose our salvation and then we can get our salvation back again equally because man's choice is decisive. I've heard young people speak in in these kind of terms, you know, so-and-so uh, used to be a Christian, but he's not a Christian anymore. So you can be a Christian, you cannot be a Christian, you can be a Christian back again. Uh, that is one view, but it flies in the face of what the Bible teaches about true believers being kept by God uh, to the very end, or what we call the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, or the perseverance of God with the saints. Second view and it's a view that was held by uh, you know, people including Charles Haddon Spurgeon, so it's a respected view, is that it's a hypothetical situation. Uh, the argument is that no true Christian can absolutely fall away, but if he did, these would be the disastrous consequences. So it's a hypothetical argument. And then the third position is that this is referring to professing Christians people whose names are on the communion roll, for example. Uh, uh, But they fall away to the extent that they show that they were never born again, despite outward appearances. And this third position is the one I feel to be the most convincing because it's in line with what the Bible regularly teaches about the importance of true faith as opposed to counterfeit and how outward appearances can often uh, 
be misleading. So as we look at the passage together, we're going to look at it uh, under three headings. First of all, uh, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is true, but it is no false comfort. It's not intended to bring comfort to people who are spiritually lethargic. Secondly, counterfeit Christians can blend amazingly into their surroundings, can be very hard to detect. And then there is a chilling warning that we are to uh, hear, but also a ray of comfort that uh, is given in the midst of it all. So first of all then, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is true, but it is not to become a false comfort. This is a difficult passage, and when we have difficult passages in our Bible reading, the right procedure is to try to understand them in the light of similar teachings which are easily, more easily understood. So understand the difficult in the light of the more readily understood. And there are many straightforward texts in the Bible which stress the fact that God perseveres with the believer. For example, John 10, 28, My sheep listen to my voice, I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. It's a marvellous verse. Uh, it's full of, of, of rich comfort to God's people. Philippians 1 verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work and you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, if the decisive work in salvation is God's uh, choosing and God's regenerating, God does not uh, give up on what he started. I've known plenty of people uh, who have projects that they've given up on, you know, car restoration, tractor restoration projects, and they began with uh, great gusto, and the vehicle is still unfinished in the garage six months down the line. God's not like that. God completes what he begins. His determined love is constant. That's great. Someone said that if... Um, if theological positions had um, flower emblems, then the emblem of Arminianism would be the dandelion, you know. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. You know, we're in one day and then we're out the next. We're in one day and we're out the next. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible believes that uh, God chooses from before the creation of the world. And he loves us with an eternal love. And there is a, a chain, an unbreakable chain that connects us with election to glory. He brings to completion that which he has begun. But these promises, though they are true, uh, are not doled out to those who are living uh, indeterminate lives. You hear this um, quite often, you know, so-and-so is not going along to church much these days, but I'm sure she'll come through that. She was converted at a, a church camp three years ago. 
should be all right. Or there's Adam in car sales and he's a church member. But he's been involved in some improper uh, relationships with some of the girls in accounts and uh, his church involvement has dropped off. He's only turning up now uh, on Sundays. And when he's challenged, his response is, oh, well, that God loves imperfect people like me. And both of these situations illustrate the abuse of the, the truth that true Christians are persevere to the end. How do you know that you're a saint in any case? What's the determining factor? Because you said the prayer? Because you got baptised? Because you're a church leader? The only evidence of present of past conversion is present day convertedness. The only evidence of past conversion is present day convertedness. Spiritual fruit today is the assurance that we are true Christians. That's why Peter tells us to make our calling and our election sure. That's why Jesus warns solemnly that branches that do not bear fruit uh, will be pruned off and will be, will be thrown into the fire. John Brown of, of Haddington, uh, the, uh, the writer, a writer on this uh, book, uh, wrote, No saint behaving like a sinner can enjoy the comfort of this doctrine, doctrine of perseverance. Its comfort is intended to communicate to saints who live like saints. It's not a pill to sleep on. Because, uh, secondly, the reality is that unconverted people can uh, counterfeit Christianity very convincingly. Uh, we're told five things about the, the kind of people uh, who may fall away so as to never be able to repent. Just listen to what uh, these things are. They are enlightened. They have tasted of the heavenly gift. They are partakers of the Holy Spirit. They have tasted the good word of God. And fifthly, they have tasted the power of the age to come. Five things. My goodness, they sound like the marks of a true Christian, don't they? What do they mean? Well, they've been enlightened. Uh, these people have come to see that Christianity is the true way. They recognize its truth as opposed to the, the way, the error of their former way. Uh, they have tasted the heavenly gift. Tasted the heavenly gift. I think that, that um, there's a number of, of explanations on that part, but it's probably they have had some genuine experience of the Christian faith. Uh, the idea is, is kind of explained by passages from the Psalms, or 1 Peter 2 verse 3, tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. And that the point that is made by tasting uh, the heavenly gift is not so much that uh, it was, it was short-lived, it's just a taste rather than you know, a, a full meal, but rather that it was real. They have tasted, they've experienced. Just as in chapter 2, uh, verse 9, the, the writer speaks of the fact that Jesus might taste death for everyone. And there the, the word taste is used to, 
to underline the reality. Jesus died. He really did die. His death was real. And these people have had, in some sense, a real experience of Christian things. There has been a reality about it. They shared in the Holy Spirit. This might be referring to uh, the graces of the Spirit, either ordinary graces or the extraordinary graces. Some of the things that are catalogued in 1 Corinthians 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and yet have not love, I am nothing. Paul speaking about someone who could have all these spectacular gifts and yet lacked the, the real one, the real identifier, uh, love, and, and be a counterfeit. Verse 5, tasting the goodness of the word of God. Here are people who, in their past, have reflected with others of the blessing that they've had from the Bible. They've spoken about uh, really getting great things from the word of God. And the powers of the coming age. Powers of the coming age is speaking about the, the age to come. The, the time when Jesus returns and renews all things. And sin will be done away. And in this present age there's a breaking in. Uh, especially in the apostolic era of the, the powers of the age to come. These people have been involved perhaps in miracles. And yet they were never Christians. They were counterfeit. And that is so solemn, isn't it, when you think about it? All of these distinguishing features. We would think that they market people as being genuine, but not according to the Lord. Think again on Jesus' words uh, in the Gospels, uh, speaking to the disciples when he says to them that on the last day there will be some who will appear before him in judgment and they will say to him, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? What does Jesus say? Depart from me, for I never knew you. Now what is striking here is that Jesus does not answer them, no, you didn't prophesy in my name. He says, I never knew you. That's a solemn thought. A solemn thought to, to those who, who minister in, in quotes, full-time ministry. You can have all kinds of gifts. You can be effective and be a fraud. So it's possible to be indistinguishable from a Christian on the outside possible to have short-lived experiences of the Holy Spirit and yet not to be a Christian. And there are plenty of examples of this in the Bible. We mentioned earlier on King Saul. Uh, King Saul had the Holy Spirit come upon him uh, in short-term experience so that he prophesied and gave rise to the proverb, is Saul amongst the prophets. But Saul was a reprobate. Saul, uh, his last days were tragic, weren't they? He, he goes, he consults the uh, medium. Uh, he dies by his own hand on Mount Gilboa. He is rejected of God. Think of Judas. Judas, perhaps the most 
chilling example of all. Throughout Jesus' ministry, Judas uh, merges imperceptibly amongst the twelve. Uh, he is given the, the role of treasurer. He's, he's given a responsibility. And yet all the time his, his heart uh, is not right uh, with God. Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8, uh, he believed and he was baptized. He followed the apostles around, but he was a fraud and he was subsequently shown to be a fraud. Demas, one of Paul's associates, a co-worker in the gospel, we know all of Paul's and some of Paul's missions. He'd been used of God. And then towards the end of Paul's life, we have these really poignant words. And you can never read them without being touched by the sense of, of sadness that Paul must have felt as he wrote these words. Demas, having loved this present world, has forsaken me. He fell away. He proved that he was not a true believer. So, the kind of people who are addressed here who are in danger of falling away categorically with no hope of repentance can blend in very readily. And it may be very hard to, to, dis to discern them. And so we come to the, the chilling warning. Uh, and the warning is that it is impossible for such people, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. The key question here is, what is what's meant by the term falling away? And what must be in mind is a deliberate, defiant, and settled rejection of Christianity, which brings Jesus into public shame. Think of the context. These people are, are, are folks who had converted from Judaism. Uh, they had come to place their trust in Jesus and his work on the cross. And now uh, they are contemplating uh, returning to Judaism. They are saying in effect, or they would be saying, we don't believe that faith in Jesus is the only way to salvation. We're going back to the old way of works righteousness. We're going to begin all over again relying on these sacrifices and offerings. Now these sacrifices and offerings were, were shadows, they were pointing to the reality of Jesus' sacrifice. And so in that sense, they were crucifying Jesus all over again, having first trusted in the cross and then gone back to the very actions which were anticipating the cross. Crucifying Jesus all over again. And in a wider sense, uh, it's true that open rejection of the gospel can lead to such a hardening of heart experientially that we are closed up. And God warns us, my spirit will not always strive with man. There's that dreadful and unseen line that someone may cross 
in their rejection of Christ. And that's what Jesus called blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which cannot be forgiven. Pharisees were doing that when they were accusing Jesus repeatedly and doggedly of doing his miracles uh, through the power of the prince of darkness. They were calling black white and white black, and there was no way back for them. And the writer goes on to use a farming analogy to show how terrible the situation becomes. A field, he says, which is a good field, receives rain from heaven and is responsive to that and to the tending of the farmer and produces a good crop. But a field that's bad, perhaps soil with a hard iron pan near the surface, won't be fruitful no matter how much rain comes down from heaven, no matter how much care and attention and tilling is given to it. In the end, its thorny outgrowth is just burned up. And the implication is that there are people who prove so stubbornly resistant to the gospel that all the preaching in the world, all acts of kindness and mercy are of no avail. They, they seal their own doom. And it's a terrible picture, really. And we, we, are, we're, we kind of shudder as, as we read these verses and as we unpack the implications of what the writer is saying. And the first readers must have felt the same as, as they listened to these solemn warnings of, of no going back from a rejection of Christ. And they must have been thinking, is there no comfort in all of this for us? And it's at this point that there is that, that ray of light comes and, and pierces the, the darkness. Because the writer does not think that this plight, this situation is true of them at least at this point. He is encouraged by what he calls things that accompany salvation. So I'm seeing the marks in your midst of, of genuine discipleship. The marks of being true believers. And it's interesting that uh, one of the things that he points to is the fact that they were helping the people of God. Helping the people of God. Now, remember the time at which these uh, Hebrew Christians are living, a time of persecution. You go to visit your, your minister in prison, perhaps uh, waiting to, you know, to have his life ended because uh, he's a follower of Jesus. And you go along and you visit him. And you're aligning yourself, aren't you, with the cause of Christ. And a, a Christian widow loses her, a Christian woman loses her husband and you go and you, you, you provide for the widow. And, and you're doing the same thing. You're, you're standing side by side the people of God. You're identifying with Jesus and with his people. That's increasingly the way today, isn't it? Maybe it's very much the situation for, for some of you here tonight. Coming to church is something which is no longer easy to do. It wasn't one, at one time. Everybody went to church. You know, it was the done thing. Nowadays, it raises eyebrows. And perhaps, perhaps especially when we identify with the testimony of the Free Church of Scotland. Maybe that increases the ire against those who do that. It's a mark of standing with the people of God, being unashamed to align oneself with Jesus and his cause. And that and other things, other 
acts of mercy and kindness and witness. These are the things which accompany salvation, which are the fruits which evidence salvation. The only proof of true Christian experience is Christ-like fruit. The only evidence of past conversion is present-day convertedness. In this whole business, it doesn't do to be looking back. It must be up to date. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. And these exhortations are all over Scripture. Think of Peter who grievously denied his Lord but did not fall away. Be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. There's a warning here against spiritual laziness. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Make an energetic, zealous Christians your role models. Don't settle for a lukewarm Christianity, a Sunday version of Christianity. There's no scope for laziness in the Christian life, for taking a, a, a break, a holiday from uh, the Christian life. When we examine ourselves and, and look into our hearts and come to the conclusion that we're simply not making spiritual progress, in fact, maybe slipping back, there is real cause for concern. These warnings are there. They're given that we might keep on the path. Nearly 300 people have perished, um, counting up to the present year, have perished trying to climb Mount Everest. And because the conditions uh, near the summit are so hostile, uh, many of these corpses have never been removed from, from the mountain. And you can see grisly photographs of uh, those who have perished on the way up Mount Everest preserved in the ice uh, and within sight of the ascent route. And some of the, the landmarks are, are named after individuals who perished trying to, to climb Mount Everest. How awful it would be to, to be embarked on that, that ascent, attempting to climb this mountain and to see these grim reminders on the way up. What they would do at least would be to dispel conclusively the idea that this was some uh, stroll in the park. This was something that could be undertaken without any great deal of thinking. And the Christian life is like ascending Everest with Jesus as our pioneer. And he assures our safety on the way. And he has us by the hand. And he will not let us go. And he will take us safely to our destination. But along the way, there are these warnings. Warnings that the, that the, the path to glory is a narrow path. That there are many uh, who set out uh, with all kinds of of naive intention, who were never converted, uh, who wandered away, and who stand today as warnings to us. 
The warnings in Scripture are solemn, but they are there ultimately for our exhortation that we might persevere to the end. They are one of the means by which God perseveres with the saints. What's the word of God to us tonight? Well, the word of God, surely, as we apply it to our own situations, wake up. Be serious about the Christian life. Don't assume. Don't rely on past experience. Don't assume because you you said a prayer or felt a sensation or received a verse or whatever it was that you were uh, truly born again only evidence of present of past conversion is present day convertedness the only real uh, assurance is that of Christian fruit the saints are kept by God to the end that's not a doctrine for us to sleep on he gives us warnings uh, to heed to take seriously the call to go on to maturity to love our brothers and sisters to put into practice what we learn And as we do that, we find that our assurance grows. Uh, We're no longer people who are uh, insecure in our faith. We have a new steel, a new determination in our walk. And that is what our world needs today. uh, As we're thinking of this morning, if we're to be salt and light in the world, uh, we have to be people who have our minds made up uh, to reach the heavenly goal, uh, who are not indeterminate professing Christians, but those who are pacing purposefully toward the heavenly calling. What a calling this is, to be a fellowship on fire, exhorting one another, heeding the warnings, and moving on in full assurance of faith. May God bless to us his holy word.